And though it doesn't feel like this now, this pandemic will pass. It won't last forever. And one day, hopefully soon, we will be looking back on it, not living through it. What you've seen throughout this crisis is that the, the union working together with the, 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 the money for supporting people through furlough, the, the army working on the, on the testing, moving people around. But now uh, what we want to do is build back better together. The reputation of the Scottish government tainted. The standing of this parliament diminished. A culture of secrets and cover-up that is only growing and it is all taking place on Nicola Sturgeon's watch. There is a reputation here that I think is uh, perhaps disintegrating before our eyes and it's, uh, it's not mine, may, may I say, but Ruth Davison has just gone through there uh, a litany of nonsense. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. Um, it's Freedom Day if you're in England, it's Level Zero Day if you're in Scotland. Um, thank you very much to uh, our Westminster correspondent Alex Brown for joining us and also this week um, our health correspondent uh, Elsa Maishman. Gina is still on holiday because she's skiving, um, so just shaking the proverbial fist in her general direction. Um, but thank you very much, both of you, for, for, for coming on. Later on in the show, we're going to hear from Willie Rennie, um, who stepped down as leader of the Liberal Democrats uh, in Scotland uh, last week. Uh, he's got some interesting reflections on his time there, what the future holds, um, and also uh, on his favourite photo op, which as any fan of Willie Rennie knows is the most important thing from that interview. Um, but good morning, both of you. Uh, Elsa, how are you doing? I believe that you have scurried on down to to London for Freedom Day. Yeah, I was just really excited to get away from all of uh, Scotland's restrictions. Uh, no, I uh, <laughs> came to come and visit um, and have been interested to notice a little bit of difference um, in the attitudes down in London. Um, compared to what's going on in Scotland, so there is, and the, the the differences are beginning to diverge even more. I think, so we'll see as time goes so, on. So take take us through what 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 is the obviously everyone listening will know about Freedom Day in terms of what Boris Johnson and the the, the UK government is doing. We're also have just entered level zero in Scotland. Um, it feels like one of the bigger divergences in policy between the two governments during the pandemic. Take us, take us through the details. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why it feels like such a big difference is that it's happening on the same day and we've heard a lot of talk uh, and build up to both the events um, in terms of re- easing of restrictions. It's not, I think, the biggest difference that we've had so far during the pandemic um, in terms of when restrictions have been tighter because Scotland has always tended to be a little bit tighter in terms of restrictions and we have had lockdowns in Scotland where perhaps they've not been quite so strict in England before. Um, At the moment it is quite different as I say it's a bit stark because it's happening on the same day. Um, In England things are a lot looser Um, for example face coverings and and social distancing is now uh, out the window but in Scotland those will remain so your face masks are still mandatory Um, you've still got to keep a one meter distance so it's a bit uh, shorter than the two meters we had but you do still need to keep it both indoors and outdoors Um, and that's something that's a little bit stricter than we were expecting we'd been told um, that there might be reduced even further outside uh, but they're not going to be um, there are also limits on big events you can only have 200 people at weddings and funerals 
um, and limits on smaller gatherings as well. So, for example, if you're meeting friends outside, you can only have 15 people. Um, if you're meeting them inside, they can only be eight. So there are still some limits, even though they are much looser than they have been before, level zero. And in terms of the general scientific community opinion on both of these restrictions, obviously there's been a lot of talk about pingdemics, and I'm sure we'll come to that soon um, in terms of, of the app down south and also in England. But with with cases as high as they are, what what are the scientific community? What's the actual like scientific advice that's driving these decisions in both governments? It's an extremely good question, Connor. Um, there's a lot from scientists that perhaps is not being uh, completely tallying with uh, what, especially the UK government has said. Um, a lot of the scientific community seem a little bit concerned. Um, we've had open letters, we've had warnings, a lot of people speaking out saying, actually, this isn't a very good idea. Cases are going to rise. We're still seeing hospitalizations and deaths. Obviously, people self-isolating is another huge impact on the economy. We've had staff shortages everywhere. Um, but also, there are still those negative effects. Long COVID is something that, again, um, a lot of experts are warning of because the the negative impacts of that we're not really sure how much the, the vaccine has a, an effect um so i'm hearing a lot of concern and a lot of potentially um a lot of these steps were taken maybe a, a little bit too soon in the opinion of some people um given that the vaccines haven't uh, spread to the whole population not everyone has been double dosed yet so let's quickly before we move on to the events of Sunday morning, which Alex, you were working yesterday, so you, you'll be able to take us through. But um, we obviously had the uh, a deadline to be hit on Sunday in terms of Scotland's vaccine rollout, a all young people receiving a vaccine or at least being offered a vaccine. Um, was that hit, Elsa? What's what's the judgment on on that target? No, it was not hit. Uh... Unfortunately, um, the Scottish government will tell you they're happy with the level that we've got to. Um, it is true that most of the, the vast majority of the population have had a first dose. Um, however, the statistics look a lot worse if you look at young people. Um, and that's something the Scottish government is quite concerned about. It's something Hamza Yusuf has said he is concerned about uptake um, because young people are potentially not coming forward for their First dose. The Scottish government target was that everyone would be given uh, a first dose by yesterday, the 18th of July. Um, it's not true. Not not everyone has been given that. But what they're saying is that they've offered it, and there are people, specifically people under 30, but the 30 to 39 age group as well, um, who've just not taken it up for whatever reason. Um, and Hamza Yusuf has said they're doing everything they can. They're doing drop-in centres. They're doing advertising. Um, so they're just really trying to get as many young people as possible to go and take that up. And Alex, we saw we saw pictures of people in nightclubs in London um, last last night as, uh, as as they were open for Freedom Day. Uh, you got your second jab yesterday. Is there anything? Have you noticed any differences in the in the kind of approach to COVID down south? Um, as well, well, obviously, I was out living it up last night with everybody else uh, in Soho, <laughs> listening to dance music and doing what young people do. Um, or I was at home with a cup of tea, depending on, you know, 
your perspective. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, to get a second jab, it's been much quicker in England than it has been in Scotland, I think, uh, we, especially with the apps as well, or the pinging. I mean, we, if today is Freedom Day and we've got about a million people are going to have to self-isolate. There were only a quarter of the population downloaded the app anyway, so it's not particularly good. Um, and all the restrictions have gone. Everyone is excited. My timeline is full of friends who have either gone clubbing, they were in heaven last night, not because they got COVID, it's a gay club in Soho, I should clarify to our our, um, our listeners. Um, but yeah, it's a weird it's a weird dynamic now because I, I haven't been to a supermarket yet, but I'm going to wear a mask when I do. And when other people don't, I'm going to be a bit like when someone, you know, eats a loud sweet or a loud crisp in a cinema and I'll just kind of do a little shh. Be, you know, I'll be judging them um, quite silently because I don't want confrontation, but also I will deeply resent them. Um, and it just, feel, it just feels insane to me that you can go from one country to another as part, part of like a four-nation approach and be like, well, we've got rid of all restrictions. And in Scotland, it's like, well, you guys can have a few more friends over, but like still wear a mask and don't actually do anything. Um, cases are soaring in England. We're going to be getting 100,000 a day. Um, uh, it, you know, just, just a, just a palpable sense of dread. <laughs> uh, Elsa, you, you mentioned that you've, you've been out in, in London recently. You're obviously, you've been, you were in Scotland last week. Um, what, what are the big differences, um, so far? Well, obviously I have, a tiny, I have a tiny sample size, um, because I've just been to a few places in London, um, it did seem as though, especially this morning, the masks were off, um, I would say. Uh, I went to a Sainsbury's, not everyone. Um, you know, I did still see quite a few masks, but it was a really noticeable difference. Actually, it was noticeable even from yesterday. Um, you know, people have obviously woken up this morning and thought, Freedom Day, take off the mask, it's now allowed. Um, suddenly going to change our behaviour, which as they, they have the right to do. Um, so there weren't very many masks that I saw. Um, but another really striking thing was the lack of distancing, um, not in terms of behaviour, because people, to be honest, I've noticed, tend to brush past you in Sainsbury's. Um, and actually, that's not too much of a risk from the, the data that we know about. Um, however, it was the infrastructure in Sainsbury's that had been Remove the particular one that I was in. There used to be screens. Yesterday there were screens between each of the self checkouts. Um, this morning there weren't. They'd clearly all been removed. So Sainsbury's, I don't know if they've done it everywhere, but I don't know how much it would have cost. Uh, but they've clearly put some kind of investment into removing all of that infrastructure. There was actually a staff member going around saying he wanted to get everything, uh, get rid of everything uh, that was to do with the pandemic. Um, he actually said no pandemic and, and was clearing everything up. So it was quite stark that, and I wonder if that has also happened elsewhere, that that kind of infrastructure has now um, immediately been removed uh, because it can be in England. If only proclamations of the end of pandemics from random retail workers had any meaning <laughs> in the grand old scheme of things. Uh, Alex, it's, it would be remiss of us not to discuss uh, what happened on Sunday morning. Uh, for listeners who won't won't know or haven't been reading the papers, both Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, Prime Minister and the Chancellor, were identified as contacts um, of the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, when he tested positive of COVID-19. And then all hell broke loose. Tell us more. I would say that's putting it somewhat lightly. Um, for a government that has established itself as a U-turn specialist, uh, they managed to achieve one yesterday in less than three hours. In the morning at 8am, Downing Street were like, the, you know, 
Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, and Boris Johnson, Prime Minister, they've both been pinged. However, do not worry, because they are taking part in a test pilot, a magical test pilot, an ex machina that's come out of nowhere, this great plot device. They will not have to self-isolate. They will be able to go and do work. But other than that, outside of work, they can't go away. But other than that, it's fine. It's a different rule for them, but it's totally fine because it's a pilot. You've not heard of it, but it's a pilot. It honestly exists. You don't know this pilot. She goes to another school, but she's real. She's totally real. We've not just made it up. And yes, sir, it's randomly selected. I know what you're thinking. Oh, surely the government aren't saying these two figures are more important than me and more important than you and my life and my existence. And on a day where 500,000 people were told self-isolate, surely they don't think they're above it and listener they did indeed think they're above it and less than two hours later we were to, and oh, oh we should why should we should forget robert jenrick went on the morning show poor robert jenrick the housing secretary telling sky and telling ma oh well i'm sure people are frustrated but i think it's quite right and they're taking part in a pilot scheme they are taking part in it and downing street said they were taking part in it and then a statement comes out and they go oh actually you know issuing a correction on a previous post of mine regarding the pilot scheme uh, to paraphrase Wint, that actually they uh, they won't be taking part in the pilot. They will self-isolate like everybody else. And instead of just going, you know what, we've seen the overwhelming public backlash from across the political spectrum because we were just trying to pull a farce on the public and say we are above you. In actuality, they tried to say, oh, well, it was a mistake. I didn't even know. I was holding the pilot for a friend. Boris Johnson put out a statement later on saying, oh, we looked at it, you know, we briefly looked at it in a video um, delivered with all the brazen, you know, all the brazen confidence of a man who said he got Brexit done. I mean, it just, it was an absolute farce. And I know you're thinking, well, surely it can't get worse. This morning on the broadcast round, another minister says, oh, they only looked at it, you know, they considered it, but they didn't do it, which, you know, far from me to cross over into political analysis in this, but it was just an outright lie. Downing Street said they were taking part in it. They weren't looking at it. They weren't thinking about it they weren't considering it they tried it they tried to pull a fast one and it you know i mean sir keir starmer the leader of the labor party said it was you know akin to you know robbing a bank and then trying to get thanks for giving the money back it was absolutely disgraceful i the idea that no one in government thought you know what we cannot do this because it might look bad it was like no the public will be completely fine with it and just before you know just before recess it is you know, as far as approaches to you know, optics go, one rule for them or one rule for us is quite something. They didn't sack Matt Hancock initially, and then they tried to then they tried to say they did. They didn't get rid of Don Cummings, and then they now they don't like him because now he's no longer useful. And then this, it is an absolute farce, and everyone involved should be thoroughly ashamed of themselves. Not just for doing it, but for trying to think they could get away with it. These are intelligent people. They went to Eton. They went to Oxford. I just, it's an absolute farce. It's not Though the first. Not to- Sorry, no, I was going to say it's, it's not the first time that this this trial has reared its head because Michael Gove earlier in the year was also randomly selected to take part in it, was he not? Or is this is this a different trial that's been brought out of the hat? No, I think it's the same one. I think it's I think it's the same one. It's the same random trial that three government ministers just happened to get into. I'd not heard of it, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means they knew about it implied. And also, unless we forget more detail in their defence, they said, "Oh, you know, we're not the only people taking part in it, Your Honour." Also, uh, I think TFL were. And then they spoke to TFL and they were like, well, hold on a minute. Like, we were told it was something they might be doing in the future. We're not in it. It was mentioned to us. So it was just uh, a good day for trying to get away with it and then lying about it. Um, an absolute sham uh, from, from top to bottom. 
And it, I mean, and then the problem was, it was so quick, you know, the peak behind the curtain of, um, you know, journalist writing. I filed the story on the, so we had a story immediately on them having to self-isolate. And then I wrote up a story on the backlash. And about five minutes after I'd filed the story on the backlash, then there was no longer just a backlash. There was only a U-turn that they were actually not doing it at all. Um, it, this government is fantastic for memes, but less good for the concept of we're all in it together. Well, let's, let's have a quick look at Savanta Comrades. Our friends at Savanta Comrades did a snap poll yesterday looking at, at the self-isolation. Um, 60% of the public believed that the, pl- the PM, that Boris Johnson's plan to dodge self-isolation, this is their words, not mine, uh, was unfair. Um, 78% said the U-turn was the right decision. And if there's if there's any data that you need to show that they made a they messed up, that's probably the question. Um, 63% of the public believe that the the whole thing is going to be damaging for the uh, Conservative Party, which probably means that there'll be five points up in the next poll. Um, and 75% of the public believe and agree with the statement that there is one rule for members of the government and another rule for everyone else. Alex, is this actually going to have any impact in the public popularity, soaring public popularity of Boris Johnson in this Tory government? I think what we have to remember, it's a very important point, is that ultimately nothing matters. Um, and Boris Johnson is bulletproof. He has been sacked twice for lying. He has a history of making comments about all manner of ethnic minority groups. Uh, he lied in the Brexit campaign. He stood with rather questionable people. And it doesn't matter. Like Nothing matters, really. He got Brexit done. He's funny. He can be quite charming. And people just want to support a government to get through the pandemic. Um, and it's hard, they, you know, they're loath to criticise. I think it will, there will be some sort of blow, I'm sure. I think there'll, there'll probably be a blip rather than a hammer blow um, to the government. But it does, you know, it does speak to a general um, concern, I think, that is growing in the public that they keep trying to get away with stuff like this. Because if we are really coming out of the pandemic, it's... You know, I, it, it, I give the example of like someone's someone I know's child was told they had to uh, they had to self isolate because a contact might they might have come in contact with someone. We know that the, uh, the chancellor and the prime minister both did come into contact uh, come into contact with health secretary, and they weren't going to. So it's like your child has to stay at home and can't go to school, can't see its friends, but they can get away with it. And, it, and ultimately, when it does affect people like that. There's no getting away with it, which is probably why they had such a such a quick U-turn. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wouldn't expect to have any significant effect. Though PMQ should be fun on Wednesday. Um, you know, Keir Starmer doesn't have so much a bow and arrow to work with. There's a full battalion uh, to unleash upon the government. Well, absolutely. It would be, be worth keeping an eye on that. Um, thank you very much both for, for joining us today uh, it's now time to turn to the interview with Willie Rennie which was done last week after his announcement of his resignation as leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats so hello and welcome to the steamy the first repeat guest of uh, the Scotsman's new political podcast um, the now former, or at least soon to be former leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats, Willie Rennie. Willie, uh, thank you so much for for coming on. Um, how does it feel to no longer be uh, the smiling face of of the Lib Dems in Scotland? Uh, has it has it sunk in yet? It's probably more of a culture shock for me. 
because the way the way my brain is now wired is to you know, make decisions. You know, not for the biggest organisation in the world, but nevertheless, it's been part of my life for the last ten years, and it's ingrained. And um, so, breaking out of that is pretty hard. It's cathartic to delete the diary entries in my outlook. That's quite an enjoyable experience. Not having to do those meetings anymore, but. Um, I think I'll miss it because, you know, I like the people in the party um, and I love the cut and thrust of election campaigns. So uh, I think I will miss it. I was intrigued that just uh, this week the opinion poll ratings for Liberal Democrats went up by seven points. So I've now come to the conclusion that I should resign every single week in order to, in order to propel the Liberal Democrats to power. That's the way to do it, I think. <laughs> it's certainly a, a, a potential route <laughs> if 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 you guys become uh, extremely desperate. I, I thought it was interesting to hear uh, Nicola Sturgeon on Tuesday during the COVID nineteen update. Um, we're recording this this episode on on Thursday, so that will have been a week ago for listeners. But um, you know, mention that it, that it, you, you've done a good shift. Um, ten, ten years is, is is a good shift. Um, what what made you decide to stand down? I mean, ten years is a natural time. It's you know, Paddy Ashdown uh, stood for leader of the UK Party for ten years, so it seems a logical kind of time to think about it. And I had indicated last year that's what I would do. Um, it's been eleven elections and referendums in those ten years. So although I've enjoyed every single one of them, even the ones that we've been crushed in, um, I I felt I had you know tried my best. And in fact, the last campaign, to be honest, I was really pleased with the way that we managed to execute what we had planned. Um, so I enjoy the campaigns, but you know, you just have to think, can you take it further? Can you lift it up? Can you shift the dial? And I just reached the conclusion that perhaps now was the time for for somebody else to to take it on. And you know, it's not as if I'm going away, I'll be around if they want my advice. Um, they'll certainly get it, um, and I'll certainly provide my support in any way that I can. But you know, just ten years seemed a natural time to to, to move on and try something new. I'm fifty three, um, so there's an opportunity to to carve a new kind of parliamentary opportunity for me. So there was no no spark, no moment of clarity. It's all been, it's all been finely balanced actually. For you know, for several weeks since the election, I've been mulling it over, looking at it from different angles. We've had mem- you know, all-member meetings uh, where we've gone through uh, these, you know, the, the strategy for the party, looking back at what we did, what we're going to do next. So I've been mulling it over through all those things. And as I say, it was still finally balanced. And so I could have stayed, but um, I decided in the end that on balance, if I was having all those doubts, then probably now is the, the moment. It was quite interesting I'm sure Jackson Carla won't mind me, mind me saying, but I get, I get on very well with Jackson. Um, and I thought the way he resigned as leader of the Scottish Conservatives was exemplary. Um, you know, great dignity. Um, you know, clearly it was a difficult decision for him, but the way he handled himself afterwards was, I thought, um, outstanding. Um, and he sent me a, a really nice message saying that he had detected a change in me and just from across the other side of the chamber and thought it was probably time for for me to go. So that kind of gives me reassurance that perhaps I've made the right decision, that if you know somebody as talented as Jackson was able to spot that, then maybe my gut was telling me the right thing. 
Absolutely. That, that, that's fascinating. Tell me a little bit more about that relationship you, you, you and Jackson have. Was it, was it just a, a chat between friends once you'd, once you'd announced to step down that, you know, I, I remember listening to Jackson's, I think it was the opening speech in parliament. You know, he's a very funny, verbose man. Um, you're looking to step into those shoes maybe uh, from the Scottish Liberal Democrat side. No, I think Jack Jackson is a, a very talented and funny man, and um, you know he he um, he had a you know difficult time as um, as leader, but he had you know great self awareness um, and you know loyalty to the party to make that decision. So anyway, he and I get on um, you know really quite well. We just have the occasional chat, and you know, in the walking up to the chamber or at the back of the chamber and um, we've always got on really quite well. So I just admired the way that he handled himself and you know, I really appreciate his judgment uh, on it. So, um, no, I don't think I'll be following in Jackson's uh, footsteps. I'm not as funny as him. <laughs> was, was there any regrets from the 2021 election? It was, it was a bit chastening for the Lib Dems, I think would probably be fair. Um, especially losing that fifth MSP, which gives you all of the additional rights and responsibilities in Parliament. What's your reflection on that campaign? It's all about relevance. I mean, where we can convince people that we can win, we win big. I mean, I, I got, what, 55% of the vote, double the majority, biggest vote that any Liberal Democrat has got in that seat ever, uh, bigger than Ming Campbell. And so therefore... It was an astonishing result. And don't tell Alex Cole Hamilton, but he's the most popular MSP this parliament's ever seen. Um, so that is quite an achievement. How do you get that? <laughs> but then you go back to you know losing a seat. So it's all about, can you convince people that you can win? And where we can, then we do win. And that's why um, the next challenge is really, uh, for the next leader, is to, is to make sure that we're more relevant and seem to be more winnable, and it's not just us, this is the Labour Party as well, um, right across the country, because we need an alternative to the twin nationalisms of the Conservatives and the SNP. Um, and both of us suffer from people who want to vote for us, who believe in what we stand for, but yet they vote for one of the nationalists, Tories or SNP, for fear of the other. Now, we've got to get fear out of Scottish politics and get people to vote for what they believe instead. And I think we've got a joint responsibility, not just for the sake of progressive politics, but also for the sake of the United Kingdom, to get our act together um, and to make sure that we can convince people that it's worth it. And then I think we'll start winning across the country. I mean, what I think we did in this election campaign, and as I said, I was really pleased with the way that we executed it, despite the result, um, that... I think what we've we've got to try and do is move on to the next stage and convince people that that it that it is winnable, that um, there is an energy and a passion and ideas about that you know progressive centre centre left uh, pro UK position. That's what we've got to try and do. So it's a big challenge, um, but I'm sure the next leader will be up to it. And, and on that. Um, there's a lot of people who are assuming um, that Alex, um, Alex Cole Hamilton, will be 
almost coronated the next leader of the Liberal Democrats. Maybe we don't want him to know that he's both the most popular and also being coronated. But um, do you think that um, you know he 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 will be the right person to take take the party forward? Obviously, I, I don't know if you can give us any insight on whether or not there will be any other voices coming through, or if if that's if Alex is the most likely person to take the party forward. Yeah, I'm going to resist on this one um, because um, yeah, Liberals and Liberal Democrats are quite protective of their democratic rights to choose the next leader um, and they don't appreciate former leaders telling them how they should do things. So I'll resist on that one. Um, but I'll just say that I think, I mean, Alex and I have worked together for a long, long, long time. I still remember him when he was a, a, a student leader at Aberdeen in the just after the 1999 election. I remember meeting him in the Scottish Parliament. He wasn't a member of the party at that stage. Um, and you could tell immediately that he had an effervescence, he had an energy, he had ideas, um, and you know he was an incredible talent. And we were very fortunate to be able to recruit him. And there's no doubt that he's one of the most... Uh, energetic, committed Liberal Democrats that there is. Um, so I think you know if, if the members choose him, you know um, he, I'm sure he'll be an outstanding leader. Um, I've uh, I've worked with him for a long, long time, and I see his strengths. And you know I look forward to working with him in whatever form that is. Understandable for you to resist, I think, <laughs> uh, being slightly cheeky by asking. Um, but uh, um, do you, I, I remember again we we spoke during the election campaign um, when you very kindly came on. I remember you chatting chatting to us a lot about how positive your outlook was for the Liberal Democrats in terms of the talent coming through through the ranks. There was obviously um, a few disappointments on not getting um, certain younger members elected but in in the in the in the sense of the personalities that are coming through the liberal democrats in scotland do you think there's 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 hope for for the party to develop the next generation of liberals to to take the party forward yeah i mean i'll give you one example molly nolan who uh, was our candidate in caithness um, i didn't really know her before the election started um but she I mean, I think she was what she's only twenty-five, and she almost won that seat from a government minister. Um, huge energy, great maturity. Um, you know, there's there's lots of people like her in the party, and what's also encouraging um, is that she's a woman, which has not been our strongest point before. Uh, but we've also got people from an ethnic minority background coming through. People like Aisha Mir, who is young businesswoman, um, who is, again, incredibly talented, not from a political family, um, but has taken to it incredibly well. So, you know, I've, I've made it one of my missions over the last 10 years to make the party look and act more like the people we're seeking to represent, you know, a proper progressive party with a diverse representation in parliament. And... Um, I'm confident that you know we will, with those new recruits, be able to to have that kind of more modern uh, party that I was desperate to get it to be. Um, so yeah, I'm really optimistic about it. There's some really talented people coming through. 
In fact, I'll really miss it. <laughs> I'll really miss this. Uh, you can just talk about it. I'll just uh, miss bringing these people on, but I'm sure I'll, I'm sure I'll play a part and continue to encourage them. I suppose you'll still be in Parliament to offer offer uh, guidance and mentorship and taking them under their wing. <laughs> yeah, and if people want to speak to me, I, you know, I will always do that, and I'll try and spot people at conference that you know, that um, speak well and you know just make their voice heard. That come out campaigning and delivering leaflets and knocking on doors. If I can see that somebody's got a particular talent for communications and ideas then you know i'll spot them and encourage them because sometimes that's all they need it's just a little word in their ear um and you know if that can make a difference to them standing or not and putting the extra effort to win or not then you know i'll I'll have those words because i think there is a responsibility on all people who've been in parliament for a while just to identify who's next uh, and sometimes take a gamble on who they are, the younger person, somebody who's somebody perhaps who's a bit on the outskirts um, of the the centre of the party. I think it's our duty to find those people. I get you. You mentioned it earlier um, when it comes to the future of the Lib Dems um, in terms of relevance um, and making a, a a space for a pro UK centre left, you know, centre party. Um, do you think that there is a real need for liberalism? I suppose I, I, I want to ask that question with the or, or, with the knowledge that you're going to say yes, but given the strength of the SNP in essentially hoovering up that centre-left ground, do you think that there is space for the Lib Dems nowadays? Do you think, it, do you think there, there, there are people out there who would vote for, for you? I mean, I'm going to say yes, but there, let me just give you a bit more substance to it. The... Um, the SNP, in terms of their ideology, are prepared to be incredibly flexible and, I would say, opportunistic. Um, so they will um, move their party onto the political space that gains them the, more, the most votes for the cause of independence. So I'm not saying they don't care about these issues, you know, but they're not the priority. And they will pivot to whatever position gets them the most support. Whereas... You know, we advocate what we believe, even if it's popular or not. <laughs> so, you know, perhaps that's our downfall sometimes that we just stick to what we believe. Um, you know, so sometimes standing up for a liberal justice system is not universally popular. Of short-term prison sentences, that's not necessarily something that's universally popular. You know, giving second chances to people who've gone astray, and um, making sure that we can you know, give people who have had a troubled start in life a good opportunity to to turn their lives around. And that's why I believe so strongly in uh, investment in mental health services and nursery education and, you know, and pupil premium for, for schools. It's why I support those things in order to give people second chances. Um, but, you know, so we'll always believe in that stuff. Um, I, I'm just not convinced that the SNP, if they found that those positions uh, didn't help them, that they would dispense with those views. So, that's why you need, you know, liberals in Scottish politics to stand up for these things, no matter what the prevailing wind um, of public opinion. You just got to stick to what you believe. So, I guess the follow-up question would be: Why has that? Why have the has that liberal view been unable to cut through? Um, especially since 
2010 in the coalition in terms of the UK government um, between the Tories and the Lib Dems down south? I mean, there's no doubt that the coalition had a quite a significant impact on us. Um, there's no doubt about that. And it's um, been frustrating to see so many talented people um, lose their seats in Parliament, um, you know, uh, from you know, from people like Michael Moore and uh, Charles Kennedy, um, you know, really just outstanding people, um, Joe Swinson, um, you know, who are, who are um, I think, uh, a massive loss to um, Scottish politics, and I'm sure that most people would would agree. Um, so, um, but there's no doubt the coalition has had a dramatic impact, and I, I like to think that since then we've managed to restore a bit of the reputation of the party and reconnect and the, build the trust and all those usual cliches. Um, but we actually, I think, through our work on mental health, early years education, the centralisation of the police, the liberal justice system, all those things, um, I think with all of that, we've managed to r- restore the reputation. Now, it sounds odd you know, when you go from five to four that you think you've improved your reputation. Um, but I, I firmly believe that this campaign this time round, probably more than any other campaign, managed to um, build up the sympathy, the support um, for the party, uh, which we need to exploit in terms of votes for future elections. And that goes back to my central point from earlier, that people need to believe that it can win. And that's why we need to have even more energy and dynamic uh, leaders and and ideas um, in order to convince people um, that it's worth it. And that's that's the job of the next leader and others to to do. So you don't think that, I suppose the, the question would be, you know, do you think there's any any other underlying problem with liberalism in Scotland other than the the coalition and the damage that that caused? Because I guess I guess there's a lot of there might be listeners who who go, oh, this is you know the coalition is often used as an excuse for for the the troubles that the Lib Dems have faced over the last ten years, and in reality, they're just completely out of touch with with what people on the ground think. Do you think that that point of view has any has any way? Well, I wouldn't have won fifty five percent of the vote in North East Fife. I was completely out of touch with the the people that I was um, seeking to represent. Um, so I don't think that argument's valid. Um, and so, no, I mean, I, I mean, there is a multitude of reasons, isn't there? I mean, we know that also uh, nationalism in its various forms, whether it's conservative nationalism with Brexit or um, Scottish nationalism with the SNP has taken a hold of the country, just like it has in many other parts of the world. Um, so there's no doubt that that's another factor in the position that we're in, just likewise that Labour have struggled in the same way. Um, so there's no doubt that that's, that's part of it. Um, the, you know, but um, people usually love pointing out the coalition. It's me that rarely talks about it. So, um, so yeah, so I think um, there's a multitude of different factors uh, but I think we're moving, as I say, beyond the coalition years. I hope we're moving beyond the nationalism years. And that's where there's a responsibility on ourselves and Labour to to really step up and make sure there's a dynamism behind that progressive centre-centre-left um, you know, place in Scottish politics that's pro-UK, 
outward looking, international, compassionate, all that um, needs to have greater energy behind it to convince people that it's worth it. And I'm sure we can do it. I know we can do it because in certain seats we have done it. Um, the, the job is to make sure that's replicated across the country. Do you think that maybe the one of the weaknesses of the Lib Dem uh, position is is I, I, again this is maybe getting into pointy headed electoral you know strategy, but one of the great strengths of the Conservatives has been um, emphasising that list vote um, and you know talking about playing into the nationalism and the fear of nationalism that that you talk about. Um, that was one of the Lib Dems' great weaknesses at this election, you know, falling behind the Greens um, in that regard. And, you know, when there is such a dominant force in the SNP, do you think that that was a mistake, not focusing on a more regional or maybe national point of view rather than what I think is often the strength of the Lib Dems, which is a an extremely strong local gra- ground game, which I think worked extremely well for, for you and for Alex in, in particular? I don't want to be involved in a politics that's driven by by fear. Um, and even if I don't win as a result, I'm not going to be driven by that. Um, and I think the Conservatives ran the darkest negative campaign that I've probably seen them, and that's saying something. Um, they, they cast themselves as the defenders of the union, but almost every step they take undermines the union. I mean, just even the international development budget debate this week just chips away at the reputation of the United Kingdom. And, you know, the the fact that we're still debating whether we have a £20 uplift on universal credit just undermines, you know, people's trust in the UK institutions. Um, and that's it's not the UK that's the problem, it's the Conservatives that are the problem. So the Conservatives are are the, the kind of the main recruiting sergeant for the SNP. That's why the SNP put the Tories on their leaflets more than the SNP, and vice versa. Now that's an utterly depressing set of politics. And myself, and I think Anis too, this time round, we worked really hard to try and present a positive alternative to those twin nationalisms. Uh, it didn't work. But would I have done anything different? No, because I'm not going to go down the route of an utterly depressing, negative, dark campaign that I think both sides ran. And my hope is that people shed the fear and don't succumb to those arguments next time. I can understand why they did, but my hope is that they see that all the Conservatives in the SNP are doing is scaring one group of voters with the other. And that's not the politics I want to see in the country. So I um, no, I think it was the right decision for us to do it. Um, it didn't work, but I think we've grown our reputation and I know we've laid the foundations for future success. Um, so uh, no, I'm, I think the underlying trends are better, although the result... It's interesting you mentioned earlier um, how the Liberal Democrats and the and Labour Party in Scotland are, are suffering from the same uh, problem uh, in terms of of success. Um, taking you back 
maybe um, a bit far, but you know, going back to 2007, and obviously the the, the result in that Scottish Parliament election was was a shock. Um, you had the SNP just nipping in front of of Labour, and one of the things that people often point to is that that decision by the Liberal Democrats not to go into coalition with Labour um, for whatever reason. Um, do you think that was that was a turning point, not only in the in in terms of the political discourse, because it allowed the SNP to maybe channel how Scottish politics was perceived itself, but also for your own party, in the sense that you you lost the credibility maybe of of being in power in a proportional system. Yeah, I mean the numbers still wouldn't have added up, um, but neither did they add up for the the SNP. Um, but the sometimes in politics you just got to recognise that the public mood has changed and they want change, and I think there was no doubt at that point that they wanted a change. They viewed the old coalition um, as having run its course, and sometimes you just got to recognise that. And it's not a scientific thing that you can absolutely measure, um, but I think they were probably right to say, right, we've had our time in government. Um, I think the public have said they wanted something different and we'll give it to them. Um, so, no, I think it was probably the right decision um, at that point to uh, to do it. I think it was difficult for Labour. L- L- Labour seemed to take a view. I remember speaking to some some older Labour politicians some years ago who took the view that them remaining in power was essential irrespective of public opinion in order to protect the people that they were seeking to represent. Um, so there was like almost a kind of a, I wouldn't say an arrogance, it was verging on that, that they should be in charge no matter what. And I think that's, I don't detect that in the in the modern Labour Party, um, but it was certainly there before. And um, it's not something, I've, I've tried to try and tune into you know, public opinion to see the direction of travel. And because I think that's really important to understand if you're going to properly operate a parliamentary system. Do do you see um, any of the same arrogance in the SNP today? Among some of them, yeah. Um, Quite a lot of them, no, but in some of them, yes. There's a, um, I won't name names, but there's a, um, sometimes it's the little bits of body language and the and the little expressions that come out in the chamber when people say things, and it's it reveals a kind of a a belief that everybody else uh, is not um, in politics for the greater good, but only for their own self interest, which is um, not a good foundation upon which to base a uh, you know an effective relationship between the parties. Um, it's better to assume that people are doing things out of the best interest of the country rather than themselves. Um, but you get a de- you detect that they, they think it's everybody's just a irritant from them running the country effectively. Um, and, and that's, you know, I think they genuinely believe that. Um, and I think that's a, a negative sign for them and I hope it, I hope it changes. Uh, otherwise, they'll get a rude shock at some point. But I've been saying that for the last 10 years, that at some point <laughs> the S&P's popularity will wane, but it's never quite come yet. But I am confident 
that it will come at some point because I think the, the foundations are there. So, and I, I guess the you know if we if we look at how Holyrood is today um, in terms of its composition, um, obviously the Lib Dems are, are are the smallest of the parties that are represented. Um, are you still confident that the party for the next five years? We assume until the next, you know, parliamentary election, can continue to influence policy in maybe the way it it has done in 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 previous years when it's had a bit more representation. I'm thinking, you know, there's there's very strong views within within the party about issues like um, judicial reform, and I'm thinking the Lord Advocate role, um, freedom of information, that sort of thing. Do you think there's that, that you'll be able to still push for change despite the lack of representation compared to previous years? I mean, the parliament is um, very uh, tightly balanced. Um, you know, the SNP can't afford to ignore anybody. Um, we make the difference between them having a majority or not. Now, you would assume the Greens would get them over the top most of the time, but they can't ignore us because we might make the difference at some point. Um, and I detect... You know, through the quality of our arguments and the relationships that we build, that we can influence them. I mean, just before I came on the meeting today, the our discussion today, I was meeting with Jamie Hepburn about an issue to do with with training and skills, and he was very open and prepared to talk. Um, you know, I've uh, had an exchange with Ivan McKee just yesterday um, about an investment in in my constituency, um, so. You know, we we can make our voice heard, and you've probably noticed that we've been very noisy since the Parliament returned, and it doesn't make any difference how many members we've got, we're still as noisy um as before. You won't shut us up. Um so so I think um we we can make a big difference through the quality of the arguments and I think through the talent that I think our members have got, um and um the fact that the SNP you know, don't have a majority and they might need us at some point. So I guess if we look, I'll ask you briefly to indulge your memory and your nostalgia, but if we if, if we look at the 10, 10 years of your leadership, um, what would you say was your proudest moment um, during that time? Uh, I think there's no doubt. Um, probably a combination of slowly getting mental health services the priority that they deserve. Not just me, but others have been arguing for it too, but um, I think we've made a significant contribution to that. Um, I think early years education, the moment, I think it was back in 2014, when we got two-year-olds the free nursery education that I thought they deserved because it's the best investment we can make in a, in a young person's future. Um, those two moments in particular um, I think have have a, a a lasting effect um for people, not for me, but for people. And that's where, you know, if, if you can make a lasting change in the country, it just it makes such a such a difference. Um, there's been many other moments that, you know, I've enjoyed, um, you know, particular debates and involved in particular campaigns, but those two things I think are the things that I feel I care most about. And then just I suppose the relationships that you build up with people who are desperate for support. 
you know, so the families of the victims of the M9 crash, um, we still have a a regular exchange just to see how they're getting on and what I can do to help. You know, and other cases like that that are sometimes a bit more, well, that all these relationships are private, but particularly private. Um, so that is kind of an honour in some ways to be able to help people who've just been through really difficult times and are looking for people that they can trust. And the fact that they trust me is um, means a lot. So um, those probably are the most significant moments for me, but certainly mental health and early years education are really important things for me. And how about mistakes? What would what would you if you if you had the chance to do your time over again, which maybe you'd say yes or no to, I don't know, but if you had the chance to do it all again, is there anything you would definitely change and not do? Right, we'll need another three hours for this. <laughs> the uh, there's been a few mistakes in my life. Um so um probably probably challenging the coalition government a bit more on some of the things that they were doing. Um, I think, you know, bedroom tax, I managed to um, persuade the UK government to allow the Scottish government to effectively abolish it here by um, changing the discretionary housing budget rules so they could increase it to effectively abolish it altogether. And, you know, I didn't crow about that at all at the time because there's nothing to crow about because it shouldn't have been happening in the first place. But I wish I'd done a bit more like that, you know, a few more issues that were causing problems um, and just being a bit more robust with them. But, it, you know, it's quite it's quite a challenge to run, you know, the Scottish party as well as being all over UK government policy. It's quite a, a difficult thing to do. Um, when there's only five of us, so but I wish I had done a few more things like, like that. I'm not sure on which issues because there's there's obviously quite a few issues that I had problems with, um, but I think probably, you know, if I was if we were going through the coalition now with ten years experience under my belt, I may have been a bit more robust with them, um, but um, you know that's you know saying somebody who was in support of creating the coalition in the first place. So I'm not I'm not disowning it at all. I accept responsibility for it. Um but I probably wish I had been a bit more robust on some of the individual things and do a bit more like the bedroom tax stuff that um I worked with uh, John Swinney and Nicola Sturgeon on. And in terms of you know how the Lib Dems from now on rebuild the support that they had, you know, fifteen years ago, um, twenty years ago. What what do you think the the best routes for re, for doing that are? Where where do you see gains being made? So there's there's three areas in particular. It's all about relevant relevance and winability. Um, so one thing we do is focus on individual issues. So we target issues like mental health and education, early years. Um, the liberal justice system, we target them, we make them our own, we are relevant, we lead the debate, um, and we need to do more of that. Um, the second issue is um, around targeted seats. So we pick seats in geographical areas that we can win, and we build up support in the organisation, we put the investment in to make the difference. So you win seat by seat 
um, area by area and you build up your numbers. That's how we did it before and we should do that again. Um, but the, the new element is working on creating energy and dynamism um, on the pro-UK, progressive, centre-centre-left. Um, and that's where you know the ideas and um, the partnership and the strength um, has to, to come now. Um, and I think that in part is responsibility of ours, but also um, the Labour Party, in order to make sure that we can present a progressive alternative to the twin nationalisms in Scottish politics, um, which again is is important for the future of the United Kingdom, not just ourselves. Um, so that's what with the three elements. So it's it's targeting issues, targeting areas, but also uh, building up um, that progressive alternative to the twin nationalisms. Do you think the space for both? a strong Scottish Labour Party and a strong Scottish Liberal Democrat Party? Yeah, because we're different. Um, we represent different parts of the country, appeal to different people in different ways, and we've got different ideas. I mean, we're not socialists. I'm not saying everybody in the Labour Party is, but quite a lot of them are. Um, you know, we have you know a view about individual freedom that they don't. They have a view about the role of the state that we have a slightly different view on. But I think where we have a common understanding is that we want, you know, that kind of a strong economy, a fair society, um, and we believe in internationalism and partnership, whether that's, you know, with the United Kingdom or countries across the globe. Um, and so I think, yes, there absolutely is space. I think the differences between us are maybe not as significant as they used to be, um, but they are still significant. And it's important that we have a strong liberal voice as well as a strong Labour voice. And I think together we can overcome the twin nationalisms. So I think uh, we're, we're, we're reaching the end of the time, but I I can't not do an interview with the departing Willie Rennie and not ask, where did the inspiration come from your for your photo ops um, <laughs> during the campaigns? Um, I mean, we could do... Uh, you could you could you could probably do a, a fascinating retrospective of some of them, but can, can you was that a was that approach to campaigning something you guys thought very hard about, or did, was it just a natural part of of your kind of get up and go attitude to 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 campaigns? We we, we actually, I mean, it's been a part of me for some time. Um, you know, Paddy Ashdown used to do some quite inspiring photo ops. Um, and uh, not quite as many as, as I was doing, but I, I still remember one, which was the uh, up in Aberdeen when we had our conference up there. And uh, they were doing, I think it was the North Sea training facility in the city. And of course, Paddy was just right at home. He was he was uh, launching himself into the massive pool, um, going into some kind of submersive machine. Um, and I remember Jim Wallace was in the boat with a, like ten life jackets on, um, and uh, they were asked. The journalists were asking why Jim wasn't swimming, and in the water like Paddy, and it, it later emerged that Jim couldn't swim, <laughs> so it was like uh, Jim was <laughs> fresh out of water, but Paddy was loving it. Um, so, um, so I still, you know, those kind of things just capture the imagination. So it kind of just organically grew over time um, but you'll, you'll notice I take my politics really seriously 
Um, but if I can use photos like that to break through and get people to speak and engage um, with me, then it's all worth it. And that's exactly what happens. Um, you know, people talk to me about these photos and that allows me to talk to them about things that they might care about. Um, and politicians are often very stuffy. We talk a particularly different language that most people don't speak. Um, so therefore, let's try and cut through and, and engage a little bit more. And I think that is part of one of the benefits of, of these photos. I mean, I also enjoy myself. It's uh, I get to do things I wouldn't normally get to do. My wife doesn't let me do these things, so <laughs> I, <laughs> so I get to do different things. So no, it's um, in, in part Paddy Ashton, but also a bit of my own character. Fantastic. I mean, I think some of the some of my favourites include the sheep wrestling, um, which is 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 up there with one of the finest political <laughs> moments I think of the twenty tens. Um, but I, I suppose the. The, the only follow-up question is, is uh, of all of them, um, which has been your favourite uh, over, over the years? Which one do you think sums you up as a politician? Actually, the, um, the one that's my favourite is the pigs um, because they, in no way at all, was pigs copulating in the back of a TV interview ever planned. Um, but, <laughs> but so that was the kind of the favourite, and it struck fear into me because I thought my campaign might be over right there and then when people drew some unfortunate conclusion from from the image. But um, but it didn't, and people loved it, and it gave me confidence to do other things. And um, I enjoyed the water skiing, which I've never tried in my life before. I I love wrestling the ram. Um, you know, I've met some fascinating people along the way who do great things in their communities uh, with all these things. It's just, you know, the last one of the last ones was uh, flying in a yellow microlight over the Bass Rock on a bright blue sunny day. It was just stunning and iconic. Um, so we've had some brilliant, brilliant days doing these things. I'll miss those photo opportunities. I hope the next leader allows me to come along to one or two of their one. But I love I love doing these things because it's just <laughs> it's part of it's part of who I am, but it also allows me to connect with people in a way that you wouldn't normally get to connect. And uh no plans of a final photo op to end all photo ops with you jumping out of a plane as has long <laughs> been trailed. <laughs> yeah, no, we've never. Actually, it's the one that the only one my wife has said you're not doing <laughs> was was jumping out of a plane. Every other one she's quite tolerated, but that one is was uh, a step too far. Oh, that's fantastic! Well, thank you so much, Willie, for for joining us on on the Steamy today, and uh, yeah, best of luck to to you in the in the coming years as as a, as you return to being a, a normal MSP one might say um, but yeah thank you very much for, for joining us as always no thank you thank you the steamy a laudable production for the Scotsman 